Know your enemies and know your friends. A study of the book of Hebrews. We have been following a long path to get to this place. We've looked at the unique temptations that Christians face, as well as the special places where God brings us to give us strength as we are facing those struggles. We've talked about the danger of drift, where you can just think like you can go along and not really have to think very much about being a Christian, but what you notice is that if I'm not paddling as a Christian, I'm floating downstream, the current's taking me to danger, going over the waterfall. We talked about the danger of turning away when temptation faces us. Just like the children of Israel who came out of Egypt and were so blessed, but then what happened? They doubted the Lord. They ended up, so many of them, being destroyed in the wilderness. It is possible for a Christian to lose their faith. The danger of falling short because of a lack of effort. That uh, we're thinking, this is something that doesn't take my full focus The Holy Spirit says to us, make every effort. And what is he saying? That by our own strength, we can keep our faith strong? No, it's that we use God's message of warning, his law, and his message of comfort, gospel. We use those actively. Our new person is excited to be active in following God's plan for our lives. And then we talked about the danger of satisfaction with our current state of spiritual maturity, that you can feel, oh, like I, I know what I need to know, like I know that Jesus is my Savior, I can pretty much be good enough with that, as if there was no place to grow. And there the writer to the Hebrews talks about how it's possible that you're not ready for solid food yet, that you need milk all over again. Now, what was solid food? What was maturity? Well, the writer to the Hebrews says it has a lot to do with Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, of course, was this mystery priest that that represented, that had so many traits that matched those of Jesus, that the real focus of a mature Christian is getting to know Jesus better. And we talked about how, well, that doesn't seem quite right. Like, Jesus feels basic to Christianity. But in fact... A maturing Christian is discovering all the more how central Jesus is to every part of life. So those temptations that we face, those dangers, but then also we talked about the strengths that we have. Strength, first of all, in forgiveness, where our perfect high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who is Jesus, um, he gives us complete and total, we've crossed the finish line with him, we have everything we need, we have forgiveness for all of our sins that Christians are strong in the face of suffering, that when life is difficult, and in particular because the world is rejecting what Christianity, what God has communicated and what Christians hang on to, that when we're being persecuted, we can be confident in our eternal home, that we have trust in the future, and that gives us confidence in the present. The writer to the Hebrews then gives this long list of people who have done exactly that, where they've trusted in the promises that God has made. That even though personally they didn't experience the end game when they were alive, they died trusting in the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews explains why God had these people die without seeing with their eyes the promises fulfilled. Yeah, God uh, could, I suppose, have planned it differently so that they would all just go to heaven, the world would come to an end, and all of the rest way back then, but God allowed them to live, not seeing with their eyes, because he was thinking of those who were getting the letter from the writer to the Hebrews. Many, many years later, there would be more Christians. And in a similar way, 
the fact that God has kept the world going has allowed us to come to faith. And if the Lord asks us to suffer because he's not ready to bring the world to an end yet, then our suffering is making it possible for even more to come into the family of believers. And so God always has this larger goal in mind and Christians can trust him if God decides, no, you got to stay. The world is going to keep on going. It's going to continue to be evil. You're going to continue to suffer, but God's bringing blessing and maybe to people you haven't even met who haven't even been born yet. So that's where we're at. And today we're going to talk about the final strength. Strength in forgiveness, strength in the face of suffering, strength as we consider all of these other believers who have gone through the same thing and they encourage us and now strong in God. So what is it that gives you the desire to wake up in the morning I'm not saying like you set your alarm clock. I mean, like, what is it that makes you set your alarm clock? What convinces you to get up? <clears throat> well, <laughs> you might have a lot of reasons. Maybe some of them are like, what would happen if I didn't get up? Right. And maybe that's what we think about first. We get up in the morning because the consequences of not getting up are not good. When you think about motivation for action, we might think primarily in terms of, well, if I don't do this thing, then this is the bad thing that's going to happen. I'd like you to listen today for God's design for motivation for Christians. Like, why do we get up in the morning? Why do we do everything that we do? Let's start. We are in Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 14. <clears throat> Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears see to it, the writer to the Hebrews says. And then he describes three dangers that we are to avoid. First, falling short of the grace of God, then bitterness, then sexual immorality and worldliness. So falling short of the grace of God, bitterness, sexual immorality and worldliness. If you were writing a letter to a member of your family, maybe someone that you, you love, you're concerned about perhaps, would your list of spiritual dangers be the same as those that are on the list that the writer to the Hebrews included? So if you're writing a, a letter to someone in your family, maybe the same age as you, maybe younger than you, maybe older than you, would the list of dangers that you would mention in your letter be the same or different or how would you compare them? Bitterness, sexual immorality, worldliness, falling short of the grace of God. You know, there might be some things that you would say, depending on the situation, that, that would be specific or maybe unique in some regard, like pride. Uh, you might be concerned about that in someone that you love. Although I suppose we could say that even that is like loving earthly things more than God, a worldliness, loving myself more than God. I think what's interesting is how the, the spiritual struggles that Christians had 2,000 years ago really haven't changed. The 
temptation to put space between us and the grace of God, that we don't feel it's that important anymore, that we don't have appreciation for the forgiveness that God has given us, that as a Christian, you may say, oh, yes, I know I'm forgiven, but I mean, almost with that voice, right? That it's not that big a thing to us. Bitterness, <clears throat> I think bitterness is, it's a big thing. We can be hurt by someone, maybe even someone in, who we thought was a Christian. There may be some Bible teaching that we've been told, and I feel like we're even, I think that's right. I think that's what the Bible says, but it's so hard for us to be confident, to trust, to be comfortable with that. And uh, maybe in our lives, we end up feeling a sense of bitterness to those who are holding firmly to that truth. And it makes us angry because we really like to be a part of that Christian community, but they're not confessing something that feels comfortable to me, and so I'm bitter, and maybe finally I drift away. I just don't want to have anything to do with that Christian community anymore, even though what they're teaching is right. But it doesn't feel right to me, and I feel bitter inside instead of like reaching out and looking for a better explanation or going to the Word of God and studying more. Just this, this bitterness that grows up and turns into something that has a real effect on someone's faith. Or sexual immorality and worldliness, right? Like we know that immorality is such a big part of, of the scene, whether it's just people's actions that are reported in the media or if it is uh, entertainment that we're watching, that immorality is so prominent, so normalized. And worldliness, the temptation to consider most important earthly things, that that's what we're after. We're after making it big in this world. And Christians, are they're drawn to these things, right? And so we could imagine ourselves writing a letter with these very same dangers. Well, with that in mind, the writer to the Hebrews, as he gives this encouragement to live a godly life, now says for or because, so live a godly life, because you have this in mind. And what comes next really stands out in the scriptures. Um, it's not that neither of these concepts aren't... A, they aren't addressed anywhere else, but the idea that they're, they're highlighting here really stands out, teaches us something incredibly important. Listen to this. For, so live a godly life, for <clears throat> you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What are you seeing pictured there? Like, first of all, with that mountain that can't be touched and burning with fire, like, what is that? That was the mountain when God gave his law. And people were afraid. They saw the power of God. What's the other picture? It's a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem. 
and forgiveness and being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus and joy and wow. You know what the Lord is saying here? He's saying, as you set your goal on living a sanctified life, don't do it. You haven't come to a mountain of fear. You've come to a place where the Lord loves you so much. Your Savior has given his life. Your motivation for doing godly things is not fear. It's grace. God's love for you. Now, if you think about children and disciplining children, we know that children sin. What strategy could you come up with to help them not sin the next time? I think some parents will say, well, what you've got to do is give them a, like a serious consequence that would happen if they do it again. And if you think about it, in a way that is driving behavior with fear. And you might say, well, I don't know what else works. Of course, when behavior is driven only by fear, what happens? What happens is it works till they get older, especially when they leave the house and you can't really threaten them anymore and suddenly they are free. How different it is. Imagine, imagine a child who has done something that is wrong and a parent has them go to a place in the house and they sit by themselves for a while and then the parent comes down and says, do you, do you understand what you did wrong? And the child says, well, yeah. You're thinking, okay, that's still not understanding and maybe you give them a little more time and you come back and say, do you, do you understand what it was that you did wrong? And you sense a bit more humility you reflect with your child, like, I am a sinner too. I love you. But do you understand what you did that was wrong? Do you understand that the words you spoke to your brother or your sister hurt them? But even more than that, do you know that, did you disobey your parents? Did you hurt your brother or sister? What about God? Do you understand what it means when we... Hear God tell us to do something, and we do the opposite. And that's not just for children. I mean, this is for adults. Like, what does it mean if in our minds we know what God has to say, and we just decide, I'm not going to do that? It's almost like we come head-to-head, -head, a power struggle with God. And we hear what he says, we feel what we feel, and we say, I'm not going to listen to you. We're telling God we're not going to listen to him. Now, who wins that kind of power battle, me against God? We know that in the end, God judges. We know that in the end, for me to think that I can sin against God without consequence? That is terrifying. The Holy Spirit, through words of warning, can convict a child, can convict an adult of sin. We're realizing all of a sudden, wow, like I did not treat this seriously like I should. I am in trouble. And then what does the parent say? Well, you should learn your lesson. And let me tell you, if you do this again, and then you give the... That is not what you do when the Holy Spirit has convicted your child of his or her sin. It is such a joy to put your arm around the shoulder of your child and say, I forgive you. Jesus forgives you. It is all washed away thank the Lord. We thank the Lord for that forgiveness. And 
as you rejoice in the forgiveness, as you are motivated, so godly behavior for you haven't come to a mountain that's scary, you've come to heaven, all of a sudden you have a young child who's rejoicing in the forgiveness that they have in Christ and you can say to them, I know you don't want to do this again. The new person that God has created inside of you is excited to show love to your brother or sister. And, and I can't wait to see how you do that. And if it starts by going up and saying you're sorry to them, that's excellent. And you know, there's going to be temptation that comes and you're going to feel like you want to speak angry words again. And well, let's, let's, let's make a plan <clears throat> that when your sinful flesh tries to get you to do that again, I want you to tell your sinful flesh that if it does that, here's what the consequence will be. And maybe it's a earlier bedtime if they really like staying up later or like whatever you des would decide to do. Where the consequence, if they do it again, is not the motivator. Having a consequence is a tool that their new person can use now. When the sinful flesh says, oh, like, it's no big deal, do whatever you want. You know, say unkind things to your brother or sister. And the new person in that child can say, wait a second. It's not that I can do whatever I want. Like, if I were to do this, there would be a consequence. Sinful flesh, you're lying to me. Your way only makes things worse. It's like, wow, a Christian using that consequence as a weapon against the sinful flesh that is trying to tell that child a lie. The motivation is not the consequence. The motivation is the love that Jesus has shown to that child. I can't believe it. I've been forgiven. That child wants to honor God with their life, and they'll use whatever weapon God has given them to fight that sinful flesh, right? At the core of living a Christian life is the gospel. We need to see our sin. We need to see the consequences of it. But that is never the last word. The heavenly Jerusalem is the last word. And the writer to the Hebrews then, he says, like, don't, you know, make sure you pay attention to the one who is speaking to you. Listen, in, in the Old Testament, they didn't escape when they were warned on earth on that scary mountain. Like, how much more will we not escape if the one from heaven is warning us, right? Like, this is, this is serious business. And that one who is in heaven is in the end going to shake everything. Like all of the things we can love instead of God are actually temporary things that can be shaken. But he's going to then put into place, he's going to keep something that will not be shaken. And that's our heavenly home. Everything that we are tempted to love more than God, that's going to be lost the thing, the only thing that matters, what the Lord has won and prepared for us, that is never going to be taken away. And so, since we're getting a kingdom that can't be shaken, let's be thankful and let's worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming... F Wait a second. Our God is a consuming fire? That sounds like scary again. I thought we weren't supposed to be motivated by scary, thankful, and serving others, and consuming fire? How could you ever connect the dots on those? And yet you absolutely can. That as you are so thankful for what the Lord has done for you, and as you are eager to serve, that you have fear, proper fear of God, that respect recognizing he's greater than you. When someone is greater than you, either you can be terrified because you know they're going to hurt you, 
or you can be in awe because you know that that person loves you. We have that fear and awe of God. And as a Christian, if our sinful flesh would ever say, oh, like, don't worry, you can do that and do it again. Like, just do it one more time. It's not that big a deal. Your new person can say to that sinful flesh, uh, my God is a consuming fire. <laughs> like, he's serious about sin. Sinful flesh, you're lying to me. I do not go without consequence if I follow you. To know that God is a consuming fire fits perfectly within our thankfulness for his salvation, our eagerness to serve, to know that he's a consuming fire is to be able to say whenever our flesh says, do this, and it's wrong. By God's grace, I do not want to mess with God. Are you ready for Hebrews chapter 13? It's the last one. <clears throat> and it's a, it's a beautiful list. Like if you'd, if you'd look at it and you can go look at it on your own and see all the different things that it talks about. It's kind of like a bullet point list for what it means to be a servant of the Lord. Like we are to love one another. We are to be hospitable. We are to remember those who are in prison. And in this case, it was most likely people who had been thrown into prison because of their Christian faith. Marriage is to be honored by all. The marriage bed is to be kept pure. Don't love money. Be content. Remember, respect your leaders. Like it's just all of these different things, all of these different ways that Christians can show love and honor to the Lord. And then he goes along. <clears throat> Jesus Christ doesn't change. Do not be carried away by all kinds of false teaching. So new teachings come in, and they're not true. And in this particular case, they were teachings that were very much connected with um, the Jewish community that had rejected Christ. So they very much were doing what was consistent with God's design as they were following God's will in the Old Testament. But now that Christ had come, and the purpose, the purpose of the Old Testament, which was to anticipate Jesus and to predict and foreshadow him, now that that was done, the shadow was no longer needed. No longer needed to look at that. Did it make sense to not eat uh, certain foods anymore? Because the Old Testament had said you couldn't. Because we're looking forward to Jesus, and these forbidden foods are part of a larger package to keep you distinct and separate and focused on the coming. Like all those reasons for the Old Testament rules were, <clears throat> they were not there anymore. But false teachers were coming in, and they were saying. No, you need to go back to this stuff. Like, move away from Christ. And on the other side of that invitation was a threat. So much of the persecution Christians faced in the early Christian church was from people who were sticking with the old ways of Judaism. So the writer to the Hebrews says, be willing to say no to false teachings, even though that may mean you'll get persecuted as a consequence. Isn't that the same tension we feel today? Like there are things that you know that the Christian church properly rejects. But society is saying you are so backward to think that that's true. And there is such a temptation for Christians to say, okay, like, yeah, you're right. That does sound kind of silly. I don't believe that anymore. And then the non-Christian friends, oh, like, thanks. Like, I'm glad to finally have you on our side. Persecution avoided because false teaching was embraced. 
That's a win. But it is, at the core, a loss. And so the Holy Spirit says, you don't want to go there. What more does Hebrews chapter 13 talk about? It talks about obeying your leaders, submitting to their authority, praying for the writer to the Hebrews, and then these really cool, like a great way to finish the book, verses 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see what just happened there? All of these godly behaviors, which the writer to the Hebrews has described, and you as a Christian, you say, like, I want to do that. Like, I so much want to hang on to the truth. I so much want to love others. I so much want to be pure in my mind and in my action. Like, I so much want to do all of that. I'm so weak. And it's true. You and I are not strong to do what God has asked. This is why it's so amazing that the writer to the Hebrews finishes off with this, this prayer. May the God of peace, essentially, who won your salvation, equip you for everything good, for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. May he equip you, and may he work in you, in me, what is pleasing to him. What is that saying? It's saying that God produces godly behavior in us. We are weak. Strong we are in God. God is our strength. He is our everything. He is the one who brought you into his family. He is the one who keeps you in his family. He is the one who works godly behavior in you. What a, what a wonderful comfort and blessing to know. We are weak. Our God is strong. The Holy Spirit, whom God has placed inside of you when he brought you into, your fa into his family, is strong. We are strengthened as we connect with God's word, as the voice of God speaks to us, that powerful voice which created the world, which can move mountains, which raised from the dead, that powerful God is the one who works in you both to will and to act in line with his good pleasure. Fight the good fight. It is God who works in you. The victorious fight against sin, against the world, against the devil, and ultimately gives us our victory, eternal in heaven, with Christ. Let's close with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we know that our struggle on earth is strong, that we are tempted to buy into the views of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh, please convince us that the right path is that dedicated Christian struggle to fight the good fight, and that it is you who are the power you are the strength. You are the one who works in us, both to will and to act, in line with your good pleasure. Thank you, Lord. Amen.